Good morning, church. It's uh, good to be back after a few weeks of being gone, and um, uh, it's fun to see uh, Paul's preaching and Stephen's preaching the last couple of weeks, and I so appreciate uh, these guys and their ability to, uh, to continue to lead us. And uh, uh, those of you who listened to the In Between podcast, I think one of my new things going on my resume is that Stephen referred to me as a brother from another mother on the podcast. Like, that's, that's going on my resume right there. So it was great. And it's so good to be back. Um, and thank you, so many of you, for praying for my son, Mark. Um, who, uh, who had surgery this week. He is doing extremely well. Um, we apparently now live in a world where you can have your kidney removed and be home in 24 hours. And so uh, what a great world that is to live in. And it's just where he can be, uh, he can be nurse-mated by his mother and his fiance. I mean, how much, how much better does it get than that, right? So, um, and so I'm very appreciative for all the different kind thoughts and prayers that have been people in reaching out and checking up on him. Thank you. Um, Next week, as we re-engage with Second Peter, I'll be presenting an update on the Southern Baptist Convention uh, convention response to the reports of abuse and the scandals that have been connected there. Um, I will give you a, a sneak peek that I am I'm encouraged at uh, at the way the convention responded to some of that. But I'll give you more information on that next week. Um, but there's a different conversation to be had today that I truly never thought I would get to have. Um, it's extremely rare um, and requires something extraordinary for me to be willing to step outside of a series like I'm doing today. Um, and please excuse uh, that my eyes will be on my notes more than normal today. Um, I take this very seriously and I want to make sure I do it right. Um, I will be uh, throughout this talk referencing, describing, and explaining some legal issues a little, but my source for my conclusions today will be God's Word um, and nothing else. However, if you are interested in more details, I highly recommend the responses that have come out in the last few days um, by Tony Evans and Al Mohler, um, and an extensive engagement with Jim Dennison and several people on his team. Um, as an attorney, I am certain that Ben Shapiro will be unpacking this for hours. Um, if that kind of thing is fascinating to you, um, uh, as it is to me, I'm sure he will have some, some great insights there and will just eat it up. Um, I also have, having looked at my notes and even during the first service, realized it's nothing short of a miracle that we finished on time in the first service. Um, the team saw the notes and all of them would have said there's no chance of us getting through the sermon in time today. And so I'm going to pray again that God will provide the same miracle the second service. So um, pray with me if you will. Um, Father, we're so grateful uh, for the power uh, of your word, and we're so grateful for the way your word, inspired and illuminated by your spirit, still speaks to us today. Um, thank you that we don't have to rely on just the best opinion of some people, uh, but instead that we can hear your thoughts and we can know your heart on certain things. Lord, I pray that you will stretch the time and magnify our time this morning together um, so that we can do justice um, to your concepts of justice. Um, we appreciate you, Father. Thank you. And I pray that you would heal our land because apparently we're not going to. So I ask for your very, very best and nothing else for our church and for our nation. Um, I pray these things in your son's magnificent name. Amen. On March 19th, 1972, I was born. Um, I'll pause to give you time to put that in your calendars if you want to. <laughs> Uh, so, pretty cute, if I do say so myself. Uh, you're thinking, man, what happened? <laughs> I don't know. 
Um, so apparently that means that around May of 1971, I was conceived. Um, honestly, I don't remember that very well, um, which, is, which is probably for the best. Um, two single living cells came together and sparked a new living human being sometime in May of 1971. At that point, I existed. I had all the same genetic code that I had when I was born several months later, and all the same genetic code that I have now. For example, since blood type is strictly genetic in nature, at that single cell state, I had my own encoded blood type, which was different from my mother's, even before my first blood cell was formed five weeks later. Much more importantly, I was existing as an image bearer of the almighty creator of heaven and earth. I was a new example of his artwork, and he had stamped me with his own image because I was already human. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. This is arguably one of the most important ethical statements that anyone has ever made ever in the history of mankind. All of us as humans are created in His image. As a member of the human race, I share in this attribute with all other humans, male and female. All of us created in His image. All ethnicities, all belief systems, all disabilities, all humans created in His image. I would never in my life need an idol or an image to commune with the Almighty God. I was that image. Already, people could come to know of Him by knowing me. Lord willing, that's become more true during my life, but it has never been less true from the time I was a single cell. In fact, when God first clarifies the sacred nature of human life, that He and only He could dictate the rules for which it would be ended, God directly cites this truth as His motivation and ours. His image is what makes us special. His image is what gives us dignity. This is what makes things like racism and hatred and murder so offensive to him. It's not because we're so special. It's because the image we bear is so special. Genesis 9, 6, God said to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Why take it that seriously? For God made man in his own image. Further, Jesus later interprets this truth and made a major application for us. <clears throat> in Mark 12... Um, the, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, sent a bunch of people. It says in verse 13, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? In this scene, Jesus will ask for a coin, and then he will quiz the people as to the image on that coin. They will say, the denarii has Caesar on it. Jesus will say, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Do you see the clear interpretation of being created in his image? The coin is Caesar's. It's his. How do you know? Because it bears his image. What does that mean about us who bear God's image? It means we're His. Fundamentally, from the moment of creation, from the moment of conception, we're His. A person is a person in His image, no matter how small. 
But now back to fetal me, who was very small. The story only gets more interested from that tiny baby just a few days since conception. God may have started me as one single cell, but I've packed on some weight since then. But I was already me. After all, what kind of single cell was I? Was I a raccoon cell? Was I a dogwood cell? No. I was a human cell. And I wasn't just any human cell. I wasn't a you human cell. I was a me human cell. I was a single cell of Chris Leg. My entire physical presence in the world, one cell. It was me. If you wonder at this, ask yourself, when did Jesus become a human being? He was the Son of God before the creation of time. But when did He become the incarnate Son of God? It must have been before His fetal relative John the Baptist left in His own mother's womb. At that point, Jesus would have been only a few days conceived. What theology would try to defend the idea that Jesus was not the incarnate Son of God the instant He was conceived by the Holy Spirit? Conceived by the Holy Spirit as a single cell, He was Jesus Christ the incarnate Son of God. What other time would make any sense? The prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah, King David and the Apostle Paul, all reference being known before they were born. Isaiah claims that the entire nation of Israel was called from their mother's wombs. Just as the psalmist, fetal me, would experience some changes according to God's design. Psalm 139, 13-16 says this, For you formed me in my inward parts, You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. I was a secret to my parents from my parents for a little while. And from everybody else for somewhat longer. But I was never a secret to God. I still am not. I may confuse the daylights out of most of you. And I certainly confuse myself most of the time. But he's never been confused about me. He knew every one of my days before there were any of my days. And then I entered the world on March 19, 1972 at 4.48 a.m. Thanks, Mom. Unbeknownst to me, when I was only 10 months old, on January 22, 1973, the Supreme Court of the United States determined that the U.S. Constitution dictated that abortion must be made a protected right in all 50 states, at least until the end of the second trimester. My entire life has been spent in a culture in which life is treated as poverty. My whole life. I've never known it any different. From that point forward in the U.S., no law could be enforced to protect the life of a child before the end of the second trimester. To be clear, this new reality as of Friday does not make abortion illegal nationally. It only means that states now have the right to enforce their own laws to protect unborn children. That's all it means. What about that second trimester time limit? That was interesting to me when I was researching this um, way back when. A woman's right to choose was determined not to be absolute, but it had to be, and you know I love this, balanced against the government's interest in protecting women's health and prenatal life. You want to understand the evil of the word balance? There it is. 
This was an effort to balance two competing priorities. And this balance fell and fell and fell and failed for the next 20 years. And in the 1992, when I was 20, the decision was made to change that balanced standard of trimesters to an even less clear standard of viability. And it remained like that for another 30 years. How did this happen? Well, in 1969, Norma uh, McCorvey, known as Jane Rowe, the Rowe in Roe v. Wade, became pregnant with her third child. She lived in Texas and already had given two children to be adopted. At that time, abortion was illegal in Texas except to save a mother's life. Norma was thought to be the perfect person for this case because, according to her attorneys, she was, and I quote, white, young, pregnant, and wanted an abortion, end quote. I don't know why I find that as deeply offensive as I do, but I do. A suit was filed on her behalf against the local district attorney, Henry Wade. That's the Wade of Roe v. Wade, claiming that the Texas law was unconstitutional. When one of her attorneys asked her personal views of abortion and whether she even wanted an abortion, Norma admitted that she didn't have an opinion. The attorney replied, well, it's just a piece of tissue, end quote. And this convinced Norma to go along. In other words, she was lied to. This is shockingly common. In my therapy with women healing from abortions and recovering from the trauma that abortion has wrought in their lives... The majority of those women, to one degree or another, have been manipulated, bullied, lied to, even victimized in the process of the abortion. It's infuriating. Not all, but certainly the vast majority of the experiences that I have, that's the case. Let me make it clear that I know that as a legal issue, abortion is complicated. At a personal level, it can be a thousand percent more complicated, even tragic. However, there are some things worth the challenges of complication and even tragedy. I believe the life of a child is one, and the well-being of a mother is another. And the end, Norma gave birth to a daughter, and the child was adopted by a family in Texas. Did you catch that? That's right. Roe did not have an abortion. She had her daughter and gave her up for adoption. In 1995, Norma claimed to have become a born-again Christian. But in an expression of real life, of course, being born again did not take away her trauma. It did not take away all her confusion about many things in her life, and it did not take away her general depression. In 2017, she died at the age of 69. In my research about her, she came across to the therapist and me as emotionally and developmentally something of a child. She was easily manipulated by whoever was with her at the moment. She was easily misled and still not free from whatever had haunted her as a child, which she never revealed. She was often self-absorbed, detached, unfaithful, insensitive, sometimes cruel, as well as depressed and despairing, so far as I can tell, her entire life. Her story is truly tragic. I pray her conversion was sincere and that she has finally found peace. In 2021, the daughter who had been lost to the system was discovered. Her name is Shelley. Can you imagine when reporters showed up at her doorstep? She didn't know who her mother had been until they told her. She had dreamed of royalty, as most adopted kids do, for their bio parents. Especially since she'd been adopted into a dysfunctional and volatile family, which is unhealthy for any child. At 19, she had determined on her own that she was an advocate of pro-life thinking. A few years later, she found out that she was pregnant two months before her wedding date. 
and kept the child. After Norma died, Shelley said she had always wanted to give Norma, quote, the joy of feeling something for another human being, something Norma was clearly unable to do. But before they could try again, after several attempts on Shelley's part, Norma had died. Shelley has now three children of her own and was able to reconnect with her two sisters, Norma's other two children, in their 40s, and they've developed a close friendship. It warmed my heart to read about her love and devotion for her sisters. I admit I myself am not totally sure why I'm compelled to tell the story of this little family, but it felt to me like posterity and history demanded it, that we not forget them like it's right for us to know. I pray for redemption for that family. I wanted to understand it and thought maybe it would help some of you as well. As to the legal decision, one more important note. From the beginning, the Supreme Court determined that abortion was, quote, fundamental, a fundamental right, giving it extraordinary protection under the law. For 50 years, even those who supported abortion, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, had criticized this legal processing of Roe as, quote, law done poorly. In the recent decision, Judge Alito had summarized it with this. It held that the abortion right, which is not mentioned in the Constitution, is part of the right to privacy, which is also not mentioned in the Constitution. It's been my dream for many years to get to talk about this intentionally and carefully and rationally and with redemption. I'm not going to end with the redemption as is typical in these conversations. In the Western world, we build up all the pain and then we try to close out with some balm. But in the Jewish mindset, the most significant thing that you've got to say is anchored in the very middle. And that's why I want to talk about redemption here in the very middle. That's where I want to anchor this. Someday, there will be a beautiful and massive city brought to earth by Christ. The one who's been preparing this city for us. Those resurrected to life will live in it. There will be, as you've heard, streets of gold. A river of life will spill into the Dead Sea and bring it to life. A tree of life with new fruit every month will grow on both sides of that river. We will have incorruptible bodies. We will celebrate the victories that Christ has achieved through us. Our pain will be gone. Our fear will be gone. And our sorrow will be gone. Now, for some of you, for many of you in the room... Just the fact that we're talking about this has already led to you're right on the verge of panic. I know many of you are are just barely able to stay in your seats out of fear or guilt or frustration or anger. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. So if you've been detached or dissociating for what I've been saying up until now, I want you to zone back in just for a second. It is my opinion that mothers who know Christ will rejoice in this moment with their children even and maybe especially the ones that they have aborted. I think God will be kept busy wiping away every tear of His precious daughters, each and every woman who knows His Son, as they embrace their aborted babies for the first time. And of course, their miscarried babies and their children who have gone on ahead for any reason. These tears of joy and redemption alone may help swell the river of life. No shame, no guilt, Only a redemption so complete we cannot fathom it. The brittle, hard, calloused, and icy brokenness we feel now will be whole and warm and right. If you're a mother or a father who hears this today and you've experienced an abortion, if you have aborted a child, then I think the best understanding of the principles of justice that God has revealed to us indicate that you will see your child again someday. And I believe in that place there will be nothing to mourn only life to be lived 
forever. Our sins will not follow us there. In Psalm 103, verse 11, the psalmist says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from him, from us. If you need help coming to terms with the forgiveness that God has purchased for you, if you need help giving or accepting the forgiveness for yourself, I invite you to let me know. Please let me know. Even if you've told me before, I, I, would, I would be willing again to sit down and I've over the years done several groups of people working through the trauma and the pain of abortion in their past. It's the hardest therapy that I've ever done and the most redemptive and powerful. Um, I would love to do that again as much as I fear it. On top of that, we partner with several other ministries who are involved in this directly. Most closely, we're connected to Care Ministries, Christ-Centered Abortion Recovery and Education, and others. Some of the work I'm most proud of when it comes to abortion is the healing work I've been blessed to do with women who have had them. I've been deeply honored to be invited to walk through them through the valley of the shadow of death. I want us to be able to come alongside women considering abortions or who have had abortions or unsure about how to take care of their children. I want us to treat these women in particular as individuals, not as some kind of demographic. Each of you has your own story and we are here as a church to hear it and to come alongside. It's part of why the church exists is to take care of the vulnerable. It's part of why Aletheia, the counseling center that I own, exists is to come alongside the vulnerable. The church exists as God's body in this broken world. A Finnish study several years back um, uncovered the suicidal thoughts and activities were higher for any woman who lost a child than one who didn't, but the increase was twice as high for those who had had abortions versus those who has had miscarriages. You're going to be hearing about the risk of suicide that's going to come from the overturn of Roe v. Wade. What they're not going to tell you is that the risk of suicide increased twice as high for women who had abortions from the time of Roe v. Wade. Greg, uh, Craig Laurie said, found a uh, source, a University of Minnesota study that said that attempted suicide was 10 times higher for teenagers who had aborted a child. 10 times. It's okay to stop facing this alone. Christ suffered and died for this sin too. It's time for you to stop paying for it as well. In Deuteronomy 31 and again in Hebrews 13, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. It's also good to understand that abortion and other forms of killing children in the worship of self, of culture, of, the, of fear, or of other gods is not new. 4,000 years ago, the Canaanites worshipped the Baals, including Molech. And Molech loved nothing more than the sacrifice of little children. 3,000 years ago, as you're about to hear in a second, and up until 2,000 years ago, it was common for the Greeks and Romans that when they had an unwanted baby to just give birth to it, and leave it laying on the side of the road. It's called exposure. And they justified it. The early church was engaged in this battle to protect unborn life just as we are. As evangelicals, we often ignore the early church writings and traditions, but they were very clear. The Didache, 
which was written as early as 100 to 125 AD, within 100 years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and probably involved many of his followers, maybe direct disciples, and certainly others who were their students, say that the Didache says this very clearly, Thou shalt not murder a child by abortion, nor kill that which is begotten. The epistle of Barnabas, similar, as another guide of ethics for the early church, Thou shalt not slay the child by procuring an abortion, nor again shalt thou destroy it, after it's born. There was never a question in the early church as to the church's stance on abortion. Not only is it not new, it's not rare. Just this last month, the Guttmacher Institute released the most up-to-date numbers, and they're bleak. I, f- I feel led to pray again. I don't do this normally, but it just hit me to do that. Pray with me, please. Father, I don't know... Uh, what this is, but Lord, I pray. I pray that you know, you know exactly what's going on. Lord, if there's someone's heart who is breaking, I pray that you would hold them close. Um, Lord, if there's, if there's someone who doesn't know if they can sit for another second, that you would somehow give them supernatural peace. We know your redemption is complete. It's total. You said it is finished. We know that it's your redemption is, you miss nothing and you miss no one. Lord, bring supernatural comfort as we continue this conversation. Amen. So the last month, the Guttmacher Institute released this most up-to-date numbers and they're bleak. I want to offer some numbers for perspective. In the Civil War, the costliest for America, there were 215,000 combat deaths. 600,000 total deaths of Americans in the Civil War. 600,000. There were 116,000 total American casualties in World War I, 405,000 total American deaths in World War II. Korea and Vietnam combined for about 90,000 American deaths. According to the Guttmacher Institute, again a pro-abortion institute, in 2020 alone there were 930,000 abortions in America. 930,000. About one in five pregnancies during the year 2020 ended in abortion. This is a significant increase since 2017. And keep in mind, these numbers don't include the pills that destroy a life before the baby implants. Those numbers don't count as medical abortions. One in four women of America claim to have taken those. So who knows what the number actually is? So the total deaths in the United States, all wars combined, is 1.3 million. 1.3 million total war American deaths in war. We have had more than 63 million abortions since 1973 in the United States alone. 63 million. What about worldwide? Well, there are about 56 million deaths total a year on planet Earth for all kinds of causes. You can see the the, all the different different things that cause death in America. I mean, in the whole world. This is the whole world. About 56 million deaths total, all of them. Total worldwide COVID deaths were about 6.3 million total. Although I'm a little dubious on that because the Chinese are still reporting 5,000 total COVID deaths in the nation of China. Color me dubious. 56 million total deaths a year on planet Earth. Except, of course, you'll notice abortions aren't listed up there. 
The World Health Organization doesn't count an abortion as a death of a human being. They keep track of them, but they don't count them among the deaths of humans. So remember that number, 56 million total deaths of all causes combined, according to the World Health Organization. Here's the World Health Organization's comment on abortions. So again, that's number 56 million deaths total of all causes on planet Earth in a year. An additional 73 million abortions worldwide every year. How is that not a genocide against the unborn? Not only is abortion the leading cause of death, abortions represent 24% more deaths than all other forms of death combined. What would we say about a species of animal that was killing itself at that rate? All of the world events labeled genocides in the last century add up to about 120 million people. We abort that number in a year and a half. Every year and a half, and we've been doing it for decades. This is a genocide against the image of God in its most innocent state. How can anyone be a humanist? Lord, we need a Savior. And praise God, we have one. So other than coming alongside parents in their healing, other than working in the protection of the God-given rights of life and liberty in the pursuit of happiness for the unborn, what can we do now? I'm glad you asked. Mark 10, in verse 29, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. For some of us, you may not understand, we may not intuitively understand that for millions upon millions of fathers and mothers to ask them to keep a child is to ask them to make a lifelong sacrifice. To sacrifice career, to sacrifice success, to sacrifice freedoms, or, or, or to sacrifice what they want in life. That is what we're often asking people to do who have unplanned pregnancies when they say, I don't want to have this child. And we say, but the morally right thing to do is to keep that child or to give birth to that child and give that child for adoption. That what we're asking them to do is to change their whole life, to sacrifice something for the cause of life and ultimately the cause of Christ. I think Christ God is looking to us, his people, his church, to be the mothers and sisters and brothers and houses for those women and their children. We are the hundredfold blessings Distraught pregnant women need homes, and they need moms. Desperately, they need moms and dads and sisters and brothers. Their children need mothers and fathers and brothers and lands and homes. I'm not a woman. I cannot experience the special fears and joys that come with that. I can only imagine the crisis that an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy would create in the heart of a mother. I can only imagine it. At the same time, I am a father. I certainly have known the pain of a lost child. I've known the fears of wondering if I can provide for my own children. I've known the fears of the health and well-being of my children. 
Regardless of our experiences, though, it is always appropriate for us to stand against injustice. I'm not a Jew, but I stand against anti-Semitism. I'm not an ethnic minority in this nation, but I stand firmly against racism. I'm not a woman, but I stand up for the what I assume to have been 450,000 women who were aborted last year alone, who will never get to be moms. So one thing we'll do is to continue to stand for unborn children's right to live. And also we need to stand in the gap for those children born and their parents. If you were ever considering getting trained to foster and adopt, it's time. Excuses need to go. It's time. If you're prepared to be helpful parents or surrogate grandparents to come alongside these families, it's time. It's time to step up, to make yourselves available. If you weren't considering being involved in these types of ministries, you need to repent and determine what your role in these ministries will be, not whether there will be any. We know that even the smallest person can change the course of the future. Why do we do this? Because it exhibits the gospel. There is a God, the maker of all things, including you. He gave us a choice, and we all have chosen ourselves. Every one of us, at some point, chose ourselves to be our own Lord and Savior over Him. Though we rejected Him, He did not leave us as orphans. He still pursued us, and purchased us, and adopted us. This is the gospel. You matter. You are treasure. He paid a price and offers you a place in His family forever in His arms. We are dedicated to coming alongside single parents, parents who have no support or examples, and the children who are in or will enter the system. With a young man last night who doesn't know Christ, and we were discussing this, several of us were discussing this, and he overheard it, and he said, it'll never happen. There's just not enough resources. There's no hope. I thought, there is the gauntlet thrown down for Christ's church. The resources are there. They're in our calendars. They're in our wallets. They're in our bank accounts. It's just a matter of whether or not we're willing to spend it. We are dedicated to being your brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And we're dedicated to facing the persecution together with you that you may face from your family or from your friends or God forbid, though I know it's true, other churches. Together we'll face it with you, with the one and only true Father. This is, this is such a big deal to me, and I want to close on some of these thoughts here. I want you to see something. I want everyone who has adopted to stand. If you've ever adopted a child, oh, your whole family, Stand. Because it's a whole family thing. Good. If you've ever fostered, I want you to stand. Your whole family. Good. If you've ever worked hand with hands-on ministry with foster and adopted children, casa workers, Royal Family Kids Camp, track, all those different types of ministries that we do, I want you to stand. Maybe you're a prayer partner for track. Uh-huh. As soon as we leave here, you can do that. Have you ever done respite care or babysitting or been trained to do those things? If you have, stand. Involved in a mentoring program? Discipling and taking care of other people's kids? 
Would you stand, please? Feeding or serving families in poverty, could you stand if you've ever done that? Yes, sir. What you're going to hear over the next few weeks is that Christians only care about the unborn. That we don't take care of those who have been born. My friends, it is a lie. Look around. It is not the truth. It's us answering Christ's call to take care of the orphans and the widows. We are dedicated to bringing the resources to support single parents, kids from hard places, mentoring foster and adoption ministries, and to reminding our brothers and sisters with abortion in their past that they are treasure to the king and they must never forget it. The truth is, more of you should be standing. You just don't realize it. Every penny you've ever given to South Spring, some of that money has gone to these ministries. You've ever worked in a youth ministry or a camp? You've worked with kids in the foster system and adopted kids, and you may have never known it. If we're going to be part of this church, we must set our minds to this. We are equipping the next generation. If you don't think this is something God has called you to, South Spring may not be the right church for you. And I'm going to ask everyone to stand with me. In a minute, we're going to sing the most appropriate song we could possibly sing. We're going to sing, and you, I'll invite you to sing. But if you need to come up here and pray about anything, if you just need to pray repentance for our nation or healing for our nation, you go right ahead or do that where you are. If this is the first time you've ever heard that there is a God who loves you, or the first time it's ever gotten through our thick skulls, that there is a God who loves you and chooses you and pursues you and has purchased you and adopted you and wants to make you His very own. And you're finally able to recognize that you don't have to be so smart as to disentangle every piece of that in order to accept it. Okay. Feel free to come up here. We'd love to pray with you. Or even better, pray with someone around you and your friends and family who you know knows Jesus. I promise you they'd love to pray that with you. For whatever reason, if you come up here and pray, there's no judgment here. I promise. None of us is in a better boat. There is no judgment in us. None of us was more or less in need of forgiveness or redemption. Not one. It is my sin too. My sin, not in part, but the whole. Nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. I'm going to close with this. Oh, if you want to be part of this dysfunctional family... I don't know why you would, <laughs> but if you want to be a part of this dysfunctional family and you've already met with Lance and our welcome home team and you want to come up here and let us know that this morning, we'd be proud to have you. I'm going to close with this from 1 John 2, 28. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him and shame at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God? And so we are. The very words of God.